Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the ATL Alts podcast. This is your host, Andre Sindate. I'm excited to begin season two of the podcast. Um, and today I'm going to be joined by Robert Swarthout, who's the founder and CEO of Teton Crypto Capital. Robert's based in the Atlanta, Georgia area, recently started his own crypto fund, but had a very successful journey to crypto. Um, we're going to get into that. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Robert Swarthout to the ATL Alts podcast. Thanks for having me on, Anders. Good to be part of this. Robert, um, I know we've had a chance to get to know each other, but for the listeners who are tuning in today, I always like to start with the same question, which is, you know, tell us about your backstory. Yeah. So I am a, a bit of an introvert. I'm a software developer with a little bit of business sense, I think is, is kind of how it all started. So I've started and sold two different software businesses. The most recent one was a focused on a wedding and portrait photographers as galleries, shopping cart, helped them with print fulfillment, kind of back office type stuff. We bootstrapped that business from 2009 until late 2018 when um, private equity came in and bought a controlling interest. And, you know, the business is still chugging along. You know, it, COVID kind of threw it for a loop a little bit and not as many weddings for a little bit, but they're now catching up on those. Um, and, you know, so I was part of that business until March of 19 and decided that I wanted to do something different. Didn't know what it was at that time, but it was time for a break. And I kind of, you know, took about a year off um, and then COVID happened. So it took a little more time after, after that, but it's been something that I've enjoyed. So again, software developer, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily a visionary in the sense that I like come up with a brand new market, but it's, you know, I, I'm a problem solver. So I like to see someone's problem and figure out how to build a better mousetrap. So tell me a little bit of how you how you identified the the wedding and portraiture like industry and decided yeah. that was a problem that you wanted to try to to go build a business around. So my wife and I um got married in May of 2009. And she decided that she wanted to get into wedding photography. So over that summer, she was, you know, off on that journey, starting to figure out how to run her own business. She had never done that before. And kind of getting into the fall, you know, I came home one day at the time I was working at Yahoo here in Atlanta. And she was like, oh, you know, here are these gallery options to kind of show the photos. And I'm like looking at them and I'm like, these are terrible. Like whether they looked bad, the business model was bad. You know, they were taking 12 to 20% of the sale on the top end. And it's like, as a getting started photographer, you need everything you can get. And they just weren't, weren't seem like they were targeted towards that. The galleries, you know, again, they say they look horrible. You know, they look like they were 15 years old. Nothing was mobile because mobile was just starting then. Um, so, you know, I was like, oh, you're not looking hard enough. So she's like, oh, you should go find something for me. So I, I literally did a SWOT analysis over about two weeks and I wish I would have kept it because it was rather detailed and come to find out that like, I didn't like anything that was out there, either at least one major strike against each one type thing. So a friend from college and I decided to kind of um, team up and kind of start that business, you know, knew nothing about photography. I'm a very, like, I have a very photographic memory. Half the time, I don't understand why people take photos. I'm like, just remember it. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's an odd marriage in that sense, but it was something that I enjoyed and you know, nights and weekends for two and a half years before we went full-time on it. And, you know, that business grew from, you know, zero employees to, I think in the low forties, maybe 43 when private equity, that deal happened. And um, 
you know, it was quite the journey. Every year I look back on it, it was um, a very different job that I had. You know, day to day is different, but certainly every year to year. So I I, I want to spend time talking about digital assets and crypto and what you're working on now. But I want to ask you one more question about um, about the business. As I think there's a lot of founders that tune in and, and are, are looking for, you know, a nugget or two when they listen to a podcast. So for the founders that are listening, if you put yourself in your shoes, you know, back in 09 and 10 and look at today, what are a couple of things? There's probably a lot that you learned clearly, but what are a couple of things that sort of stuck out about wish we'd have done this or we really nailed this, you know, and it worked? Yeah, that's a great question. We could talk hours about this kind of stuff, but it's sure, you know, I would say for me, I, I'm very much a person that like, yes, I like goals, but like I'm not one that has my goals for the week or the goals for the month type person. I'm very much like I'm gonna get 1% better today at something and build on that tomorrow, tomorrow. And like, I look back over a year, I'm like, okay, look where I've come from. Um, so, you know, reps and sets type mentality, but, you know, you know, maybe this just applies to software, but we were very customer focused. You know, everyone likes to say that these days, I would say 15 years ago, it wasn't as cool of a thing to do because the business knew better and the customers is there to buy something type mentality was what it used to be. Um, but, you know, we would literally like get feature requests from customers. We would catalog them. And then if we in keep track of who asked for what, if we ended up doing it, whether it was a month later, two years later, whatever it may be, we'd literally follow back up with them and say, oh, you requested this. We want to let you know it was done. If you have any feedback, let us know. And especially early on when you can do that cycle much quicker, it's not taking months or years to get back to somebody they feel like it's being built for them. And like, they become like your army out there and they'll tell anybody and everybody about it. Like we got to the point where, um, you know, word of mouth signups. So referrals was like 25% of our inbound signups. Those, those are free. And like those people will defend you to the end of the earth a lot of times, unless you break that trust. So just build and find ways to build trust. I think is the, is the headline there. So that's a great takeaway. So you built a company, decided, at a point, it was time to sell. Mm-hmm. You did sell. And tell us what you did next. A lot of founders already jump into their next thing. What did you yeah. do when you sold Shoeproof? Again, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. You know, when I initially was leaving, I was like, it's likely to be software because that was just natural. Um, but I had promised my wife we would do some travel. So we did a lot of travel over 19. And then the Q1 of 20, we decided it was kind of the the one big trip she was waiting for. Is we did, we were on a round the world trip, so we were gone, supposed to be gone for eleven weeks. The world changed in Q one, as everyone knows, um, and we got chased home effectively by COVID. Uh, we didn't get it, but the world again was shutting down that second week of March, and we had to like race home. So made it to nine of our eleven weeks and came home. And you know, obviously, the world's paused. And I didn't know what to do. It didn't feel like the right time to start a business because like nobody was doing anything. Um, I started exploring some ideas and just software didn't feel right. Um, it also felt like a highly, highly competitive market to be hiring software developers in right now. I was like, maybe that's an extra challenge the business doesn't, a new business doesn't need right now. So, you know, I just started focusing on my crypto. Like I've been in crypto since early 2018 and, you know, I've been reading about it and following it ever since, but I kind of really ramped up the, um, the time that I was putting into it almost to, you know, full-time level job. I was, you know, 30, 40 hours a week, I was researching and just reading and following along. So 
you know, as, as much as it was fun and it felt like I was goofing off in, in many ways, but it, it, you know, I was building a, a knowledge base up at the same time. So when was the first time you heard about crypto? Mm, good question. So everybody in crypto has got to, has this kind of story. I, I, in some ways I have two stories. The first one is really short. So it was um, late 2012. I, I don't know, remember how I heard about it, but I heard about this magic internet money thing called Bitcoin. And what intrigued me about it was not only could you have it and not really use it, but you could you know, use things that for it online, but you could make it yourself. You could mine it. So I bought a couple of bitty miners about the size of, I don't know, a baseball. They were super small. Um, and I ran them in the basement. I mined like 8.2 Bitcoins over the course of six months. And then I sold them for like 80 something dollars a piece. And you know, again, not the best choice I've ever made in my life, but because I got bored with it. And I was like, there's nothing to do here. Like, you know, it's just um. These things are just making money and just me making noise in the basement. Um, Wait a second. So I want to go back. I want to go yeah. back. This is the first time uh, that a lot of people have heard probably somebody that went out and actually bought a mining. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you yeah. bought you bought a mining device or machine. Yeah. Put it in your basement. Yeah. And over the course of six months, you said that you mined about eight Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin every roughly four years um, doubles in difficulty. If you want to, that's the simple way to think about it. So you have a couple doublings or halvings to go backwards, you know, so I had three of these machines. So over the course of, you know, six months, they kind of slowly accumulated, um, you know, just over eight Bitcoin. So do you remember what Bitcoin was trading at, if you Uh, will, when when um, you bought the machines? I, I don't remember it moving all that much. I remember selling for like 82, $83 a piece. Um, you know, even today in the bottom of the bear market that we're in, it's uh, $17,000. Um, I remember distinctly getting curious about crypto again um, in fall of 17 when Bitcoin had its run from like July up until specifically from Thanksgiving to Christmas when everybody, when you know, every, every taxi driver was telling you you needed to buy Bitcoin type thing. So, well, you um, strike me as somebody that doesn't like have a ton of regret because you, mm-hmm. you, you've moved on and you've yeah. decided to turn you know, some of those experiences into now a business. So you mentioned there yeah. was, an, there was two stories. So the yeah. first one was. Yeah, that. So the second one was just after um, the bull run ended in 2017. I remember being on a plane ride um, the first week of February of 2018, um, going to a conference in San Francisco and I had CNBC on and I was watching it and they were functionally making fun of a token called XRP. They were calling it the banker's token. And like, in the, you know, if you, bankers, I guess, does all have the best reputation, right? So it's like, you know, it's easy to make fun of them. And I kind of came away with the thought of, well, maybe it's a bacon coin, but like bankers know how to make money. And maybe I want some of this bankers coin, like the most rudimentary like thought you could have about it. Um, And that was like the entrance into the rabbit hole that has become the next roughly five years at this point, you know, researching. And I, you know, there was times that it was very conspiracy theory focused. A lot of the research and other times it's more practical, but, you know, I, I started to really understand the the problem that XRP and the company ripple that's using XRP was going to do with it. And it just like the light bulb went off, you know, people often in crypto talk about like, they don't get it until something is said or they read something. And all of a sudden, again, the light bulb goes off and it's like, that's the only thing they can think about. And it's like, they see the world. They feel like they can see the future. Right. And right. It's um it's very much how I felt. And you know, as I you know, I look back on 2018. So 
I started doing this crypto research, running a business and going through a deal process. I'm not quite sure I had to, how I had time to sleep. Um, crypto was a great distraction when I just wanted something to kind of like almost like veg out on effectively. And it was a, um, you know, it was, it was a fun year, but it's, it, I, the bear markets in crypto are long, right? They're very different than a lot of people expect in the traditional markets where, you know, bull markets are much longer. So bear market, this last time was three, three and a half years. So it's, I did a lot of buying the dip thinking that was the last dip. Um, so, yeah. you know, having gone through a bear market, I have a very different perspective on it this time around. So. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to talk more about that. Yeah. So it's been five years. You, you gave a great backstory uh, with respect to your, your personal journey to being a founder and and then selling your business and then discovering crypto and Bitcoin. Uh, I love the anecdotes and the stories. Tell can can you frame your experience up like before we sort of transition this interview into what you're doing today? Like what lessons have you learned from the last you know five or six years in Bitcoin and crypto? And maybe there's a few things that stick out for people that are listening. Yeah, I would say a couple things. So crypto is not as scary as I think people make it out to be. Yes, there's bad things that can happen and bad things that happen anywhere in life. You know, it's just about educating yourself and learning how to be smart with the with the risk that that, that exists. You know, where where risk are, there's typically opportunity. Um, you know, and for me, it's just been like, I, I'm very much like a, a constant learner. So I like the news cycle, how it's evolving, how it might change the world. You know, people have these theories on like where it'll be used, where it will not be used just trying to understand it, have a perspective. And, you know, the practical side of me is like, how, you know, what problems is this going to solve? Yeah. To me, a problem is not like, I've never been a baseball card collector. So like NFTs, when they came along, didn't excite me, but the, the underlying idea of what an NFT could be excites me. You know, when an NFT is a car title or house deed, I get excited. That's like solving real problems, but you know, the technology has to prove itself. So you know, just just the evolution of learning, um, seeing how the world slowly goes from, you know, three years ago, anytime I talked to crypto, people thought I was crazy. Um, you know, like, oh, I'm wasting my time. In the good times, everyone's calling me trying to figure out how they can buy it, which potentially is not the right time to be doing it. And then you kind of fast forward into a bear market, and nobody wants to talk to you anymore. And it's, um, that's when that's when the work gets done, right? Like you can really like buckle down and, you know, a start a business or really like do the deep research to find the stuff that's, you know, overlooked. So you, you mentioned something there about, you know, folks calling you and sort of human psychology. I know we can mm -hmm. spend hours talking about human behavior and the markets and how uh, that drives a lot of decisions, fear and, and or greed. Let's talk about sort of phase two here. You decided crypto and, and and digital assets is an area where you wanted to spend time. Some people would just invest personally, maybe go on an exchange, open yeah. an account and, you know, maybe start dabbling. You, did you do that or what, what, what's transpired in this sort of second phase, if you will, of your career? Yeah. I mean, essentially since February, 2018, I've been personally investing in crypto. So that that's been happening you know, if you rewind to summer of 21, there was some friends that knew that I was doing crypto stuff personally. And they didn't know each other. And two of them reached out about a month apart. And they were like, you know, would you ever consider taking my money, you know, or helping me invest in crypto? And like, I'm very much a person. I don't help people pick stocks. I'm not going to help you pick crypto because it's even riskier. And I was like, thanks, but no thanks. 
Um, Because in my mind, I had built it up to being, oh, if I was going to help them, then I really need to do this the right way. And it funds like this big hairy beast from a compliance perspective. And I was like, I wasn't interested in that kind of work. Should, should Would you say it that way? So, you know, roughly, I don't know, three to six months later, they both kind of came back within short order from each other and kind of asked the same question. I'm like, okay, at least let me like do my part here and understand why I'm saying no, because it wasn't an educated opinion the first time. So I reached out to a securities attorney and understood what running a fund was to find out that it's not as crazy as it seemed, you know, under 105, 110 million, whatever the threshold is under Reg D. So I was like, okay, I can do this. You know, in some ways I can help people more than I could help them before by actually putting, you know, putting this through a fund and setting it up. So kind of started down the process, but again, that's, that was fall of 21 into January of this year in 22. It was not the right time to be buying. I knew it. And I was like, it just felt like, you know, setting myself up for failure or early parts of failure in a fund. If I knew the thing was going to be down 60%, 80%, you know, within a year. So kind of played it slow for a while. And then over the spring, we kind of worked on legal and just kind of weren't necessarily talking to active LPs actively. And then, um, over, you know, once, once I saw us get to a bear market quicker than it was to me, the, what I thought was the bottom of the bear market. So that would have been June of 22. It um, kind of evolved. And then I was like, okay, I need kind of need to kick this into a quicker pace to kind of start onboarding LPs and stuff. So kind of so that's, us to today. Yeah. So today, you know, we're in the winter of 22, this mm-hmm. process started, you know, more, more or less a year ago, it sounds like yep. you, but if I understood what you just said, you elected to wait, if you will, to sort of aggressively go and market that you were doing this until you felt mm-hmm. that the that the Bitcoin or the the crypto space had started to hit what you thought was bottom. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I, I was like, it just didn't. You know, I could. Yeah, I could have solicited back then and held in cash, but people are not paying me to hold cash, so it's sure. I, you know, never run a fund before, so there's a lot of learning that's going on for me. You know, every day is a new acronym. It seems it type type mentality, but it's you know the roughly half the LPs I talked to back in the spring, like, would you be interested did not, did not come through I'm slowly understanding that's probably was a decent hit rate, even if 50% kind of went away. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, there, there's a lot that's happened in crypto in 22, potentially the most amount of news in any given period, period for crypto to, and a lot of, most of it to scare people away. Right. So it's, yeah. it's been an interesting year to kind of weather the storm of sorts, yeah, definitely want to talk more about that. But the, you know, n- another, I guess, another really important, you know, point that you brought up, which some of the key learnings of deciding you have a software development background, you've mm-hmm. started two SaaS businesses. Uh, now you find yourself navigating regulations and compliance and deciding to take the plunge to set up a fund. And, mm-hmm. and it sounded like there was a lot of learning. And maybe just the veil was pulled back on this yeah. isn't maybe as hard. Um, what have been several things that you've learned from that experience? Yeah, you know, again, coming from a software world, in many cases, you build a great product, people will come. Um, it's probably the opposite here, right? It's like, you know, if you, if it, you know, software products are sold, not bought. Um, so you have that. You know, you have the hesitation in the, the greater macro environment. It's not great right now. So it's like, you know, asking people to go to the casino with you is basically what we're asking them to do in, in crypto right now. Um, you know, and mass media, in my opinion, does not cover crypto fairly and or accurately. 
like by any stretch of the imagination. So you're fighting that. There's just a lot of headwinds. But again, the people that are willing to have the conversations and do a little bit of learning, I think, have an opportunity to, you know, have some outsized returns with some patients. So. So let's talk about where we are in, you know, in terms of the, 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 the crypto, uh, the crypto space, the crypto industry. Um, you've been at it, you know, really since 1718. Other people are at different stages in their journey. Um, obviously, one of the things I'd love to hear from you before we dive into the kinds of things that you're investing in, the kinds of tokens you like and why, paint a high, you know, maybe at a higher altitude, maybe paint a picture of sort of where we're at mm-hmm. in this crypto evolution and the crypto industry, most people that will tune in haven't had their head in the sand. They're aware of FTX. They're aware that we're in, you know, some kind of significant pullback in the industry, but maybe you as an insider can sort of give Mm -hmm. some perspective. Yep. You know, I, maybe we can step back one step even further than that and kind of frame it even more. So, you know, the first version of the internet, so the late nineties into the early two thousands, that was internet 1.0 that you might consider as read only that, you, you know, you weren't creating content, you were publishing content, you were consuming. It's like an online newspaper for all intents and purposes. You had web 2.0 that came along and as a read and write. So social media, Facebook, Twitter, those kind of things, blogs were like a big piece of web 2.0. So you had the ability to kind of have a voice. And then web three that's coming along. Crypto is part of web three metaverse. There's a lot of things that can be wrapped up in web three but I would say the analogy there is it's read, write, and own. So you can own your content in a more granular way. You can own access to things. You can own, you know, an NFT is a great example. If you're a collector, NFTs may be the greatest thing since sliced bread for you, you know. So it, it's it's those um, stair steps, you know, as, as the geek in me, when the internet was created, you know, you may see a website that says, oh, we can't, you know, page not found. That's a 404 error. There's an error code that was developed as part of the original um, internet that said um, payment required, but it was never implemented. There was no good way on the internet to collect payments. Credit cards was the closest that we had, but a credit card transaction is not going to run for a penny or two pennies. It's, you know, a dollar is kind of the roughly the threshold where it starts to make sense um, to run a credit card. And there's, you know, security concerns and all sorts of stuff. So uh, you're starting to see, in my opinion, the realization of the full internet, Um when you start to um, you start talking about at least the blockchain and crypto pay, uh, space or piece of Web three, and you know long term, you know crypto is you know the, well, let me back up. The underlying technology is blockchain. Blockchain is a database. At the end of the day, it is a mathematically proven history of all things that have happened in that particular chain. You can go all the way back to the beginning and see the status of things. Um, crypto is you can think of it as a, a vertical off that. Um, so it's, you know, it's finance, it's money, whatever that may be, but blockchain can be used for different things. We could use, we could have a blockchain voting system. It would take all the theatrics out of a voting day. It would be rather boring. You know, the news media wouldn't like it. Um, and we would know with finality at the end of the day, when the polls closed, who, who, who the winner was, we wouldn't have to take weeks to count ballots. Um, so you have those kind of problems or, you know, blockchain can be used for, you know, tracking of things that have, you know, nothing to do with voting or money. It's just purely like, a ticketing system, you know, an NFT could be a ticket to a concert and you could sell it without Ticketmaster if you wanted to, or you could have your identity in the blockchain. There's so many possibilities for like what Web3 is going to do, in my opinion, to revolutionize the world. 
Cryptos is a small piece of it. It, it is currently a big piece of it, but long term, I think it's a, um, you know, it's one of maybe a dozen markets that are blockchain is the underlying technology from. So, so I want to recap what you just said because I think I think it's pretty, I think it's very profound. So you you described the internet as 1.0 was read. Yeah. So in in 1.0, then an example of the internet would have been like news websites or reading a newspaper. Web 2.0 would be now you can go on and do Substack and you can have instead of Mm -hmm. reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, you can be a reporter for one of those, you know, companies you can leave and you can set up your own, Mm -hmm. you know, and have your own following and people can pay you for your content. Yep. And then you're saying Web 3.0 will be effectively maybe what uh, Meta or formerly known as Facebook is Mm -hmm. investing billions of dollars in um, where they're setting up if you will, a virtual world yeah, I mean, one, one potential one piece, one piece of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, there is an, there is an overlap from the metaverse that you're referring to there and into crypto. Cause like in the metaverse, you may want to own the items, your digital items. Okay. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's where they bleed together. Um, you know, there's, you know, a lot of people have kids that do gaming and their kids spend money on these games and they, they develop characters, they earn things in the game, they may buy things in the game, to, you know, better, know, better shield or something. Well, in a blockchain or a crypto enabled world, that could be an NFT that represents that shield that you bought and you could maybe, maybe it gets extra powers. If you play better with it, you can sell it and make a profit. Or if you don't want to play that game anymore, you could sell your stuff and move to somewhere, you know, to a different platform that currently doesn't exist. But that, to me, as a non-gamer, that is coming. Um, what it's it's really about how the gaming companies decide to kind of promote it or try to put a walled garden up and protect what they got. So. Sure. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so here we are now in this this crypto uh, digital assets environment. You've elected to express you know, your, your views now in setting up a business. So tell us about that. What, what did you decide to build? Yep. How did you decide to elect to pursue certain types of, of tokens and cryptos, mm-hmm. you know, help, help enlighten us. Yeah. So last um, year ago, last fall, right before I talked to the attorney to figure out what a fund took to run, I was also running a newsletter for people that were interested in crypto, a private newsletter, invite only type thing. That any time that I was buying a new crypto, I would send out a quick email saying, "Here's why I'm buying it. Here's where you buy it." You know, very. You know, and it's typically not as easy as this. Like, oh, buy it on Coinbase. There was a couple steps involved. Over the course of about six months, I, I don't know, a dozen of those things I published or something. Not nothing crazy. And I found out late in 21 that nobody had ever followed through. People wanted to, but it was like. Oh, get money on Coinbase, transfer to a different exchange, buy it there type thing. It was just enough steps. People were crypto curious, but crypto scared. And not necessarily in a negative sense, but just like worried about doing it wrong. Because I hear these horror stories, uh, again, on the medium. So I um, started doing the fund. So the fund is basically just a, a culmination of what I've been doing personally for the last three to four years around the strategy. The strategy being, I just focus on researching cryptocurrencies that solve a commercial problem, specifically in cross-border payments, supply chain management, and trade finance. You know, incredibly unsexy topics. Um, but I find them interesting because the potential in them is so immense. Um, there's a, a high degree of friction, um, especially in the trade finance, like where they're still literally using paper for most of their process and they're not even electronic. 
Um, and, you know, they're a trillion dollar market, sometimes trillion dollars per day or year, depending on where you're looking. But it's a um, huge opportunity. And, you, you know, this is not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next year. It's something that's going to play out over a decade or so in, on the trade finance side and on the shorter side, um, the pay, you know, cross-border payments will are starting to happen now. Um, you know, it's early stages. We need, you know, Congress to get out of the way and then we can kind of, um, or Congress to do their job and then get out of the way. And then we can kind of move on with seeing some real growth here. So, so <clears throat> we'll, uh, this will be, this will be the part of the podcast where we'll sort of, you know, we'll, we'll draw a line in the sand. And so I think yeah. everybody probably hopefully followed along up to this point. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'd love to do now is I'd love to talk, allow you to talk about some of the some of the applications you mentioned trade finance you meant, you mentioned uh cross border payments and and supply chain the, these are terms that i think the the person that's sort of reading the business news and is like mm-hmm. informed is probably aware of but how crypto and how digital assets problems, yeah. what what problems are they really solving yeah. but i think this next piece you know to the extent that um like try to accomplish explaining what some of those problems are so yeah. the everyday person can see, okay, that's a real problem, and this is how crypto and digital assets really does address that. So maybe maybe you can pick one or two examples. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't talk about the fund specifically, but we can talk right. about the you know the investment, um, if you will, opportunities for some of these right. companies. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll start with cross border payments because I think that's again that's the one that likely starts you see real um, use cases first. So Ripple the company is using XRP, the token, to compete against your MoneyGrams, your Western Unions, and your SWIFT network. So if you've done a international wire, it's using SWIFT. Uh, you know, if you're going from dollars into euros or something like that, MoneyGram and Western Union, you probably understand is, you know, more of a retail-focused um, solution. MoneyGram and Western Union have great businesses and they are really entrenched and in some ways don't want the future to come because their high fee business is going to get squeezed. Right. Um, You know, I've never used either one of them personally, but I've read stories about, you know, people sending money home. You know, it's really the remittance use case that they're solving. So somebody working, say, in the US and wants to send money home to the family in the Philippines or something like that. Um, you're, in many cases, they're going to pay like 20% of what the money they're sending in fees. So it's specifically the people that likely can't afford the high fees are the ones having to pay it. You know, if you were right. to do wire, you're not paying 20% on your wire. Um, yeah, you're paying, you need a bank account paying. and they need yeah. a bank account. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's you know, a chicken and egg problem. I get it. But at the same time, it's, it's unfortunate. So, you know, MoneyGram and Western Union, you're, I think they sometimes market, oh, you can have the money in an hour around the world. They've functionally set up their own private networks of funds sitting in bank accounts all over the place. So that, that's how they move their money around. So, and then you have the SWIFT side, which is obviously international wires. That's a lot more volume moves through that, that kind of channel. That's the correspondent banking model. If anyone's familiar with that, that's where banks have arrangements in other places around the world. Like I'll hold money, you hold money. We'll just debit and credit these accounts. It's a lot of parked capital, like trillions, like something. Sometimes I see numbers in the like 20 to $25 trillion is parked around the world, basically not doing anything besides just enabling the system. So SWIFT is the messaging piece of it. The correspondent banking model is the settlement piece. So how does crypto solve this problem? So in Ripple's case, they've developed commercial software that they sell to banks and other businesses that would, here in the US, they say... Um, 
somebody would want to send, well, we're going to use the use case of saying somebody wants to take his dollars and send them to the Philippines. We we'll use that same example again. So somebody buys with Ripple software here in the US, they would buy, they would take dollars and buy XRP, the token. And that would happen within seconds on a US-based exchange. Within the XRP network, they would transfer that to an exchange or a wallet address that would turn, sell that those um, XRP into Philippine pesos and it would settle. That would happen without Ripple's business fees on top of it. That's less than a penny, that transaction. Wow. Rip, Ripple, the company, you know, obviously has to make money. So they, I've, I've heard that they, it charges they, for that kind of thing. It's roughly a dollar or something like that. So, you know, not to not percentage based, it's, it's single digit dollars for, to accomplish that. And that is the settlement and the messaging all wrapped together versus the correspondent banking model we were talking about before, you know, and it's, it happens 24 7 365 there's no banking holidays you know there's stats that say six percent of international wires because they're usually going through multiple banks hopping along the way have errors in them and they need to be um a human has to address them and like manually go deal with them it's you know it's not unheard of to hear a wire going from say the us to the philippines or not well a non-euro based country because the us euro corridor is very liquid but going to the other corridors, it takes two to three days, sometimes five to seven days. And you have the error rate. It's just, it's crazy. Um, and, you know, there's high fees on wires. I mean, they're just not percentage based or, you know, $7,500 sometimes. So it's um, crypto solves the problem. It takes the trust out. You don't have to trust a bank anymore, right? Like you, you likely trust your U.S. bank, but you don't necessarily know if you can trust a international bank. You don't have that kind of relationship. So it allows you know, it just it's taking almost in some ways peeling back an onion because um, the correspondent banking model with, with international wires. Now, if you're a credit union here in Atlanta, and you must send money to Europe. You're sending it out of the country via three banks, likely JP Morgan, City and Bank of America. They function have a stranglehold on this market. They have no reason to see this change. They like it. This arrangement works for them, but in, in a blockchain enabled world, that credit union doesn't even need to have a relationship with anybody else. They just need to enable it to someone else on the, um, and Ripple's network that, of all these banks around the world. So they can have a direct relationship with a bank in the UK, for instance, or the Philippines. So, And if it were only so easy, Ripple could yeah. have this model yeah. and have yeah. credit unions and banks, but a loss, there's always, there's always, there's always problems. You know, there's always something hanging around the corner that's going to scare you, right? So the... Ripple's made great progress um, in countries that have been forward thinking about their regulations and how they deal with crypto. Um, early on in the early days of crypto, only drug dealers and people doing bad things use crypto. We're past that stage, but we're not to the stage here in the US that has regulations. Southeast Asia is so far ahead of the curve compared to us. Um, Ripple's business is exploding there. So a lot of inner, I guess, inner region transfers within that system that I described is happening. You're starting to see some of the stuff out of the Middle East into Asia and that kind of stuff. So those countries seem to get it. They have motivations to be more on the early mover side because they're trying to, they, they would like to be the financial centers of the world type mentality. Um, but here in the US, the the you know, the SEC has gotten in the way or Congress hasn't acted. You know, there's, there's a lot of finger pointing here. Um, and hopefully sometime soon, you know, maybe in 23 is the year that we all get rarely do you want Congress to give you more regulation, in my opinion, but in this case, we would like at least some, and uh, you could kind of see an industry kind of flourish 
um, and you know use the American innovation and kind of continue to be leaders in finance versus maybe being some laggards here. So, and so if you if if you characterize the entire industry of different tokens, it it from the outside looking in, it it seems like there are thousands <laughs> there of tokens. Are. There are yeah, there's, okay. There's um, I think twenty one thousand something like that. Okay, so there's so there's twenty one thousand tokens that are out there. Before we dive in, maybe to another example mm-hmm. uh, of of sort of the commercial use case, why are there so many? And what's your prediction? Just mm-hmm. As an aside, like what's your prediction yeah. of like where the industry goes? I mean, will there be twenty one thousand in a year, or will there be two hundred thousand in a year, mm-hmm. or will there be two hundred? Like, yeah, it's a great question. I it's easy to make a crypto. I think that's what people that aren't deep into it think it's like this mysterious thing that you have to be a developer and work for a year and you know have to have a math degree, right? You know, if you want to create your own blockchain, that is the case, but you can create tokens on existing blockchains and that's how we start getting to this scenario where we have 21,000. Hmm. I haven't necessarily looked at the stats recently, but it would not surprise me that if at least 60%, maybe 70% of that 21,000 are all Ethereum-based tokens. Ethereum is the second biggest network. And it, you know, we could have a um ATL alts token in about 15 minutes if we sat down to work on it. Like okay. it's worthless, obviously. Or sure. you know, other people think it's worthless. We may think it's worth, you know, tons of money here in like. It all it takes is one person to buy it at a certain thing, and all of a sudden your market caps, whatever that person the last trade was, which is a silly way, in my opinion, to judge cryptos. But that's the current market and the current way that we do it. Um, but you know, long term, I think that once regulations start coming, and you know, the world be- the world starts looking upon crypto to actually solve problems instead of being so retail focused, you're going to see that 21,000, they will still exist. They will have no liquidity, not trade. So functionally they're gone. I, I, if, you know, if 99% of them went away, I would not be shocked. Like yeah. there, there, there's a washout coming. It's not going to again happen overnight. It may be take years to do. And you slowly see some of these bleed off um, because it's, you know, the quote unquote scams of crypto. Again, it's easy to make a token. You do some social media marketing, you pay an influencer. You get a little bit of liquidity. And you, as the person that started it, start selling off to these people coming in and you make money. There's nothing illegal about that right now. Right. Like, so it sounds like regulation is, yes. is the, next, so the next, the next big phase of, yes. of where crypto goes. I want to ask you about the, you know, the, the retail uh, and institutional customer base for, mm-hmm. for crypto as you've been on this journey um, is regulation in your estimation, the big, um, you know, the big silver, silver bullet, if you will, to, to addressing some of what's holding back the industry, or is it multiple things that, that have to come together? I, I, it, probably two or three things, right? Um, it's, it's certainly probably the biggest thing. You know, I think regulation comes along and then you find somebody or, you know, some investment advisor or something like that that wants to be a first mover or has clients that are really pushing them and wants to help them solve that problem. You start getting that. There's there appears to be a lot of people that would like to be like fourth or fifth in the line or tenth in the line, not first or second. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that once you have regulations, you start getting rid of some of this pump and dump stuff and some of these other bad things that happen in crypto. You know, the, in quote, you could say the the adults get to move in and the kids get to stop playing with it, and it gets taken a little bit serious more seriously. 
Um, the only time it seems like the media cares about it is something bad's happening or the prices are going crazy. We, you know, regulations I think will help moderate the extreme ends of the spectrum, the bulls and the bear market here. And you know, it's kind of brings some civility to some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it feels like when you step back and and for those that are on the inside, if you will, like mm-hmm. you are with crypto, I'm I'm sure uh, you see it differently as you've been through several of these cycles, but it does really feel like this narrative um, where, you know, and that's, that's America, right? People love these like underdog stories of the guy in the cargo shorts and the t-shirt and the wild hair, like mm-hmm. sitting next to the billionaires and making all this stuff happen on Capitol Hill. And like, how's, I can relate to that person. Like, that's kind of me. We love that spectacular story, but we, mm-hmm. you know, Americans are also fascinated with that Ferrari crashing into the wall and like $30 billion, you know, going to zero, yeah, if you yeah. will, um, in, in a matter of, you know, literally a couple of, of weeks. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, and, and maybe, and I don't know if that's crypto or if that's just that particular situation, but it mm-hmm. does, it does really feel like there is a narrative out there that people are following, whether it's through their news on cable or it's the newspapers they read. And then it feels like there's a whole bunch of technology that's really interesting and there's, you know, real problems being solved using that technology and that narrative gets missed. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of challenges that I think that crypto faces. And part of it is, you know, we've talked about lack of regulation, but, you know, the way that kind of manifests itself is, you know, in crypto currently, like, there's no reason that, you know, a billionaire can't tweet about something and the price shoots up like crazy because he thinks the dog is the, the coin has got a cute logo and he likes the dog. I mean, that happened with Elon and Doge, right? And now this Doge thing is attached to him in such a way that like the Doge fans are like just holding their breath continuously. They can't wait to mention again because they can make some money. That's not healthy, right? It's, um, and and to him, it's just a game. If anything, he's obviously, you wouldn't wouldn't think speculating on, but he could be buying the tokens and pumping and dumping it. And there's nothing illegal about that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have that kind of stuff and just learning how to, um, not only do this lawmakers need to get educated, but the media needs to get educated on the right questions to ask. You know, this stuff that you're a little alluding to with um, Sam Bankfield Reed in the FTX stuff, like he's a smart guy. Is he a con artist? You know, I guess it's, you know, maybe your definition, you'd have to figure that out. But like he, you know, went to MIT. He's, he, his parents are work at Stanford or teach at Stanford. So he, he's a, he's a smart guy, no matter how you frame it. And like, the questions that the media is asking him around what happened, they, they don't even know how to ask questions about how exchanges are run to understand the good questions to ask. Mm-hmm. They're right. asking him, oh, like, how do you think the money went missing? Well, he can make up anything he wants and it's going to maybe satisfy their desire for good TV. I mean, whether they realize it or not, a lot of these news outlets are acting more like TMZ than they are like journalists. Right. Um, yeah. Maybe the narrative is being shaped in, yes, in, yes. instead of it. Like the facts uh, and and the practical realities of what happened to billions of dollars of customer assets, yes. customer but, assets, and you know he you know FTX raised two billion dollars. Like where'd that money go? Like some of it went to pay for arena naming rights and stuff, but two billion dollars is a lot of money. Like yeah, yeah. So. Let's go back to uh, some of the things that you're you're most excited about in terms of uh, some of the technologies and the problems that you're being solved. You you gave the example of Ripple and XRP. Could you share? Mm-hmm you know, another example or two of what gets you really excited in these other fields like supply chain finance Mm -hmm. and, um, you know. So 
you know, a challenge with blockchain in general is how do you get businesses that likely don't fully understand it to start embracing it, at least it, like dipping their toe in the water. And there's a there's a company and a token. It's the same name. It's Quant that is helping businesses, whether it's, you know, somebody help connect some to supply chain stuff or even help do some payment stuff. But the idea is their software runs kind of in between the business and the blockchain and allows them to have one direct access to blockchains without having to bet on a specific one. You know, when we talked about this 21,000 as a business, you don't want to make a bet on one of these, to- uh, these, these networks and decide to go away in a year or two because you're going to have invested all this time and money. So they kind of give them, a, you know, from a technical perspective, it's called an API layer. It's a, a way to kind of interface with it. They, you know, part of what Quant's doing is they're working with central banks around the world to help develop prototypes and test for their central bank digital currencies, the CBDCs that you may have heard about. You know, they're doing different things that they're attacking, but the idea that you're helping businesses quickly bridge into and not have to take such a specific bet, I think is interesting leverage there that they have. Um, They actually have patented that process. So there's some protection that they have around that as a business. And, you know, it's not fully granted. It's, you know, there, there are early days of that, but it's something that um, sh- to me shows a lot of potential, right? Because it's like, yeah, you have to slowly start turning this wheel and over time it'll pick up speed and, you know, it'll be easier to convince businesses why they need to be on the blockchain. But right now you're having to find the ones that are really curious. It may just be like, I don't know, use an example, maybe a CTO at a business that is somewhat crypto curious themselves that sees the potential in their manufacturing business to maybe you know make payments easier or something you know that kind of thing, and and so maybe a fairly obvious question, but maybe this would this would provide some insight to the investor uh, out there, the the listener. You have companies like Ripple mm-hmm. and Quant. Why can't they just be like every other company that's a a business to business company and going to solve problems for other companies? sell their service, sell their product to those companies. And that that be the end of it. And there not have to be a token. There not have to be a way for yeah. somebody out there to speculate it. Is it because they're not publicly traded and you can't buy their stock? Or is there some reason why they have to go and issue a token? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, yeah. you know, wh- why, why I... they've chosen to have a token associated with solving remittances mm-hmm. or solving trade finance or supply chain issues? Yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but I think the big one is if you're, if you're using a blockchain and sometimes people use blockchains to solve problems that they don't need to be right. I mean, I think that's kind of maybe what you're getting at a little bit there. You know, they're looking, they have a hammer, they're looking for a nail type thing. Um, But in the case of Ripple and Quant, you know, they're, they're solving two different problems, but Blockchain enables two different parties to interact with each other, whether it's payments or just sharing information in a trustless way. Like there's so much trust that's built into a financial transaction because you're, you know, I may not trust you, but we have an escrow service that we used as part of the transaction, right? Escrow service is not needed in a blockchain world because you can have a smart contract that comes along and we like functionally do our inputs into that and it makes sure all this is happening. And it's like, you've given me my thing and then it gives you your money type thing. It's just like, mm-hmm. it's atomic or it doesn't happen at all. So, you know, in a world that has less and less trust each day, blockchain, oddly enough, is, you know, in some ways, right to place, right time. 
because it's provable, it's public, um, anyone can see it. Uh, maybe not necessarily the the you know. There's ways to hide the you know the personal details per se, like the identity. That that part has not been solved. So that's you know I guess T TBD on how that gets solved in, in going forward. But you know it's just trust you know or a lack thereof depending on which side of the fence you're on there and um, yeah. have the ability to kind of you know they're using blockchain as a tool um to kind of help solve the problem i guess sure i'd love to get your take on the you know we talked a little bit about regulation but i'd love to get your take on where you think the bigger opportunities are for the industry to get broader adoption we're mm -hmm. we're in what i guess what what folks call the crypto winter you know, based on the prices of of a lot of the the more widely held tokens like Bitcoin and Ethereum. But if stepping back from the day-to-day -day news cycle and the day-to-day -day prices, um, what are some of the big things that get you excited about where the industry is and why you decided to put your your energy mm -hmm. and resources and talents here versus other other yeah. things? Ventures. Yeah. I I've been telling LPs or potential LPs all year long that regulations is the biggest thing that's holding us back by far. We need a catalyst that would cause Congress to act. You know, Congress very much likes to um, never, never let a good um, disaster go to waste. Um, or I forget the exact phrasing there, but it's, you know, this seems like the moment. So I didn't expect a blow up of the FTX size to be our catalyst. I, I mean, maybe we overshot the need there a little bit, but it's, um, it's certainly likely to be the impetus to get Congress to act. You know, I hope we don't see Congress giving us regulation in December or January. That to me, that's bad. They're not educated yet. They need time to digest it. We need time to kind of let the dust settle. But if we started seeing regulation towards the end of you know Q2 next year or you know mid 2Q, I would be excited about that um, because it helps lay the groundwork. It's not going to be comprehensive legislation. I think it, we probably start around something that has to do with stable coins. Um, it's kind of, you think of it as building blocks. That's probably the most basic thing that they could vote on at this point and just kind of stair step our way in. You know, Congress, you know, I wasn't quite old enough to have been paying attention to the news when the internet was first coming up, but the, the way they regulated the internet, they kind of gave it some guardrails, but didn't try to overregulate it. I would love to see that happen this time, just because the potential to overregulate is too tempting because it's dealing with money this time and all the bad actors that happen in it. Ironically, everything's happening on a public blockchain. So the FBI loves it when that happens. So, but people tend to kind of not understand that piece and, you know, kind of, you know, conspiracy theories run about. So before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you, as you think of the journey of building a software business um, and the journey of, you know, really being early, as many people say, you know, using the baseball analogy where we're, you know, Maybe we're not even in the first inning. Maybe the game isn't, you know, even underway kind of thing. We're singing the national anthem. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it feels early, right? Yeah. So so you have a lot of people uh, who I, I know I interact with and it's like, oh, I missed, I missed the run up, you know, mm -hmm. and my opportunity is over. What do you say to people who are either out there and they're skeptics and they're sort of crypto curious, but mm -hmm. they're trying to sort of time, they use time as a way to sort of decide when right. to get in, when, when should I get in? And I, again, I'm like you, I'm not an expert. I'm no professional to offer advice here, but, but maybe help uh, provide perspective, mm -hmm. you know, as somebody that's lived in this world now for the last five years to those yeah. folks out there that think that they've missed something or. Uh, yeah. 
I, I tell people like I use the baseball analogy you did. I use that frequently, yeah. um, to, especially to sports fans. They get it very quickly. You know, to people that are in the finance world, I use the example that we, how, how do I best describe this? Like it's, you know, current the current um, state of crypto is it's retail focused. Well, what percentage of retail is the stock market? It's a small percentage. It, granted, ran it up during the, the COVID times, but it came back down. Like institutional money can't touch this space right now for various reasons. I mean, may, maybe through, you know, a fund or a hedge fund, but that's the closest you get. You can't really put it, your 401k into it or you're not seeing these big pensions and stuff allocate to it. So it's it's early days. Yes, you did miss your million percent return in Bitcoin if that was your goal. Sorry. Um, but you know, some of these percent returns is, is what grabs people's attention, but is much like winning the lottery. So maybe you just go buy a lottery ticket if that's really what your goal is. Um, but if you want to be a little bit more strategic about it, have a little more, more realistic goals, you know, I, I still think there's amazing returns to be made in crypto. You just have to have patience and, you know, pick, pick your, um, uh, your bets wisely. And that's, you know, what I hope to do with the fund, you know, where it's a basket of 12 to 20 tokens and, you know, some of them might be winners and some of them might be losers, you know, fast forward and talk to me in a couple of years and we'll figure out where we're at. So, yeah, well, we'll definitely have to do that. We'll have to check in with you uh, from time to time as somebody who's obviously an enthusiast. And and also it does though sound like you have a a, a sort of reasoned and and uh, informed perspective mm -hmm. about, you know, where where the industry has its shortcomings, but also what are some of the catalysts? Um, lastly, if you're somebody that wants to learn more, if you're somebody that's curious about learning, as many people are when they're evaluating new investments or new businesses or new ventures, what are some of the things when, when you look at the new cycle, there's all these choices and there's all these places to get informed. And you've talked about, you know, sometimes how how the media misses, if you will, misses the mark. We're not here to bash the media, do a lot of good, but how does an investor get informed? How do they begin to build that body of knowledge in this area because there's so much promotion and there's so much um, on Twitter and, and you just, you see so many people sort of pumping up their angle. Yeah. Uh, and so how, how do you become more uh, just an objective observer, but also mm -hmm. become informed and smarter? Yeah. I, I think there's a couple things you can do here. One is if you don't own crypto, um, go buy a hundred bucks or something on Coinbase, a Bitcoin, Ethereum or something, that may be enough to keep you wanting to pay attention to it. Not because you need to pay attention to the price, but keep you interested in the space. Um, and then going from there, I think that it's, you know, as much as I have a love-hate relationship with it currently, the Wall Street Journal's got a good weekly newsletter that they put out, sometimes bi-weekly, um, where they talk about crypto. You know, sometimes I think, again, they're not the most informed, but they're also not pumping and dumping things. So I think that in some ways helps, you know, clean up some of the mess there. You know, the news in crypto lives on Twitter. If Twitter's not your thing, it's tough to tell somebody go to crypto because there's a lot of noise there. Most of it's noise. Like, how do you really get to the good parts is, is the challenge that I deal with uh, on an ongoing basis. So there's um, like a news outlet, um, Coindesk. Um, dot com. They write pretty good articles. Again, this we're early days. We don't have like amazing, um, you know, journalists with like all these like English degrees writing gr great content. It's, you know, sometimes you would think a computer wrote it and maybe it did. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would tell you to stray away from articles that are always focused on price 
and pay attention to the ones that are saying, oh, this company just partnered with this company and they're trying to do this. Like if you have an interest in payments, fine. That's easy to kind of follow that news. Or if you have an interest in real estate, there's um, a couple of companies and blockchains that are focused around tokenizing the cash flow from real estate and or the actual ownership into NFTs and that kind of thing. So, you know, you can find your niche. Um, and I think Google is a good place to start. And um, yeah, find people that know about crypto and ask them, I think is the other the other way. Right. Yeah. I was going to say pour, pour into your networks and pour into yeah. your friends. Um, Robert, I want to thank you for joining me today on, on ATL Alts. One of the real joys of the show is, is getting to meet entrepreneurs and, and visionaries and people who are, you know, not only dipping their toe into a space, but really going kind of all in. And, uh, but also maybe more importantly than that, are willing to share, you know, the insights, the learnings, the perspectives for those that, you know, are out there thinking about um, whether it's investing or starting something. And, and you certainly, through your, through your journey of being a founder, having an exit, uh, having a couple of exits, and then deciding to, you know, to really dive into a new and exciting area like digital assets and crypto. Um, I think we can all take away a lot from that. Um, I want to give you a final comment or final thought. You're, you know, you're coming into 2023. Uh, there's a lot, uh, you know, things to still be determined on Capitol Hill with respect to entry legislation you've talked about, but also just the promise of crypto and, and digital assets. So, you know, give us a final thought and perspective as you, you know, as you look ahead and yet that grounding in sort of uh, reps and sets that you talked mm -hmm. about, which I think is a really cool way to think about it. How do you balance those two things? Yep. So I think that, you know, whenever we get regulations, it'll, it can't come soon enough, but, you know, 23 is likely to be a somewhat boring year from a price perspective, pricing perspective. I think that maybe late in the year we get lucky. Um, but it's more in 24, you start seeing things happen. You know, we have the SEC ripple case that's going to come to culmination in Q1 sometime that could actually cause Congress to move quicker because it gives in potential, it likely is going to give XRP clarity one way or the other, whether it's a security or not. And Bitcoin is the only other token that actually has clarity. So it's also an unlevel playing field. Um, I'm all for level playing fields, even though I like XRP. So it's kind of like, you know, I, maybe I wanted a disadvantage there for a while. It's, you know, there's just so much education needs to happen. You know, when I got in the fund, I was like, you know what? I thought the challenge was going to be running the fund and talking to investors. The fund, the challenge is educating people on what crypto is. So I'm, you know, in, in much of an education business now than I ever realized. So I'm looking forward to kind of figuring out how to do that more efficiently and, you know, casting a more wider net. So, yeah, well, that's great. Well, it, it sounds like a really exciting time for, for you personally and professionally, but also for your business, Teton Crypto Capital. So Robert Swarthout, I want to thank you for joining me today on ATL Alts. Robert Swarthout is the founder and CEO of Teton Crypto Capital. Um, I really appreciate you joining me today on ATL Alts. Thank you for sharing your story and your journey. And I wish you the best of luck. And I hope you'll agree to come back and join us on another show. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you.